Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced through the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Today's guest, Stanford sociologist Marianne Cooper, is a leading expert in the field of gender and family dynamics. Her latest book, Cut Adrift, Families in Insecure Times, details her efforts to understand how families representing an array of social classes perceive and manage contemporary economic anxieties. She and guest host Sarah Catherine Billups discuss the many ways that these problems often fall to wives and mothers, even amongst those who have transcended gender boundaries in professional life. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Sarah Catherine Billups, and I'm here with Marianne Cooper, the author of Cut Adrift, Families in Insecure Times. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Great. So can you start by just giving an overview of your book for our listeners who have not read it? Sure. My book is about how families are coping with rising economic inequality and insecurity. So I was interested in what families across the class ladder are worried about, how they're dealing with that worry, how they're managing that worry on an emotional level, and then who in the family worries about what. That was sort of the the animating questions that, that led me into this. And so you did mostly interviews and ethnographic work, correct? Yeah. So what actually, since we were just talking about reading for your qualifying exams, um, I read a lot in my qualifying exams about these economic trends um, of you know growing inequality and insecurity. And what I was really struck by was how much of it was, um, you know, quantitative statistical analysis, this kind of meticulous putting together of tax, re- tax records or even bankruptcy filings and all these things to show that these trends were um, increasing um, and more and more Americans were sort of losing jobs, losing homes, going into debt, all of these things. But the experience of that um, was missing from these accounts. And so um, after spending you know, a year or so reading, I just felt like I wanted to understand how people were living out these trends in their everyday lives and how this was being experienced at, a, at an emotional level. Um, so doing interviews and then following families around doing ethnographic work with them felt like the best way to really understand that part of the story. And I think to some degree we have had uh, you know, ethnographic accounts um, of people who've lost ground as the economy has become, you know, one based more on services. Um, so Catherine Newman's work and, and uh, many other scholars, but we hadn't seen a uh, cross-class comparison either. So um, it felt like I definitely needed to do a qualitative project, but also move beyond, um, you know, what's happening to not just the people who are kind of getting the worst of it, but also across the class spectrum. Yes, And I agree with you in the reading I've been doing. Most of the work has been quantitative and less focused on lived experiences, which doesn't give us the whole picture of what's really going on. Yeah, I I felt like there was a big, um, you know, there's a big social cost to all of this. um, But understanding how people individually and in in families are making sense of all of it was what I really wanted to focus on. Mm -hmm. And so... Can you talk more about how you recruited families and found families? Yeah. Uh, So a lot of it was, um, you know, accidental, as a lot of qualitative uh, research projects are. My first big stumbling block was um, how 
always going to recruit people from different income groups because you don't just normally ask people how much they earn. And so I struggled with figuring out a a way to sample different groups. But um, what happened was that I met a woman who was working as a cashier at a big box store as I was checking out of that store. And I thought, you know, I, I probably know what her income is based on the kind of job that she has. And so I asked her if she'd be um, interested in letting me interview her. And so I did. Um, and this turned out to be Laura Delgado, who's profiled in the book. Yes. Um, and her story is one of, um, you know, sort of the what I would say is a very typical experience in America of you know going into debt because of a healthcare emergency and then the family kind of um, coming apart as a result of all of that, um, as well as layoffs for her husband. But uh I, after I interviewed her, I asked her if there was, you know, could I accompany her to do something um, so I could meet other people and other families. I, uh, from the interview, learned that she lived in a working class neighborhood and I thought maybe I could meet other people and kind of snowball sample from there. And so she said, sure, come on, we're going to this, um, it was an all-star baseball tournament for her nine-year-old son. And so I went to the game with her and was sitting next to her in the stands watching the game um, when I realized that uh, the team that her son's team was playing was one of the most affluent, um, was from one of the most affluent cities in Silicon Valley. And so I realized that I could... um, try to recruit families by going to this um, all-star tournament. And they have them all over um, every area, but ar- around Silicon Valley, they had them at that time of year, um, which was, you know, kind of early summer. And so I went into a lot of games and I sat in a lot of stands and I um, recruited people that way. And that's how I um, got about 12 families for the study. And then from there, I just um, snowball sampled and other uh, other people I came across in different ways. But that was the primary way I recruited the families. Great. And you were very intentional about seeking families as opposed to single people. Yeah, I think so much of this story, um, like how how we make sense of what people feel um, they're losing or are going to lose is directly related to their concerns about their children. Um, and I really wanted to understand uh, how that was playing out uh, for parents. And it actually became a big way of seeing um both what people need to feel secure um, and what they were worried about losing. And that was sort of unexpected. I think we have, um, within sociology, we have a very objective definition of what security is and what it should be. And if people have, you know, healthcare and a decent paying job um, and live in, you know, a relatively safe community, they should feel secure. And, and what I learned from talking with so many different families is that security, what it is and how it's defined is a very subjective um, thing. And people who we might expect to feel secure don't necessarily feel secure. And, and the other way around as well, people we might think would feel insecure can feel much more secure than we might might have guessed. Yeah. And can you give some examples of that for people who have not read the book? Sure. So I guess one of the most surprising findings, um, and it took me a while to make sense of, is that I I started off um, when I first started interviewing affluent families. So affluent families who by by any measure um, are very well off. Uh, they expressed a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxiety, um, particularly related to their children and how their children were going to fare. Um, 
And what I came to see is is the way the parents um, saw everything is they're very uh, up to date, so to speak, on you know the transformation of the economy and um, how jobs like highly skilled, highly paid jobs were requiring more and more education and sort of a niche skill set. Um, and they were very concerned about positioning their children and what they saw as an increasingly globalized and competitive labor market. And um, the path to security in that context was, uh, making sure their children got you know, top-notch educational credentials, um, which required like a whole project. And it was mostly mothers who did this work um, of positioning their children and making sure they were doing well academically. Um, and the fathers were in charge of sort of the financial aspects of, of this, what I came to call security projects. All families have a security project, but what it looks like and the um, obstacles it's up against are, are very influenced by social class. So, um, for, you know, fathers that I would talk to who wanted their kids to go to, you know, I don't know, Harvard undergrad or some top school undergrad and another school for graduate school and pay for all of it, we started talking about, you know, millions of dollars just for just for their children's education. And so um, because their security project was so large and because what they were really trying to do was create sort of an economic firewall to protect their families from what they saw as this increasing insecurity throughout society. Um, there was a lot of stress and pressure um, because it was never enough. They always wanted more and more and more. And I um, I had one father say to me, you know, I, I know we're in the top 1%, but I still don't feel rich. And um, it took me a while to unpack that story and re really figure it out because my expectation going into the project was that um, affluent families would be feeling really secure um, because everything you read shows that, you know, this group of families is sort of on, on the, the winning side of this um, of these economic transformations. But that's not how necessarily how it was being experienced um, in their day to day lives. And on the other hand, middle and working class families that I talked to a lot of times were um trying to push down their anxiety and concern that they did over um, really intense economic issues and difficulties and setbacks. Um, and at first I thought it was, um, you know, there wasn't any concern just because of the sort of flip way they would describe certain things. But over time I came to see that as actually a coping mechanism. It, there was a very um, conscious attempt to push down this kind of anxiety and worry, worry because uh, in order to just function, if if their concern was really bubbling um, to the surface too much, it would become even even more difficult, if not impossible, to deal with what um, what they were facing. So, um, I came to see this as you know a really a, a two different ways of responding. Um, at the top, they were upscaling; they wanted more and more and more. And in the middle, working class families, I, I came I, I came to know they they did what I call downscaling, which they started lowering the bar on what they felt they needed to just kind of feel secure and um, really um, just kind of pushing down their anxiety, often because there was not much they could do to change their situation. And when you say scaling down, that could mean a bunch of different things for different families. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, one thing I would try to understand every time I interviewed someone is what their kind of definition of security was, um, and if and how that had changed over time. And so you could kind of hear in a story about someone's life, like, you know, if they had a house and then then say like they lost the house or um, they had to move because, you know, their rent increased. Um, there was a kind of a justifying and a rationalization process going on, which was like, oh, but I, I we really didn't need that. And, um, you know, I 
the lower down the class ladder, often the definitions of security got, you know, kind of narrower and narrower. And, um, you know, I interviewed one woman who worked as administrative assistant. She said, you know, all I really need is food, shelter and clothing and just like a couple bucks in my pocket. Um, and that was really interesting to listen to when, you know, the next day I interviewed a, a very wealthy um, tech executive who told me that he didn't he didn't feel financially secure until he had thirty five million dollars in the bank. So you see these kind of polar opposite emotional kind of understandings and objective understandings even of of security um, and insecurity and what that looks like. But the point is that we're not just pulling apart economically. I think there's also a pulling apart emotionally happening as well. Yeah, which seems to have a big effect on family life. And although you focused mostly on parents, did the kids and different families handle these things different ways? Yeah, it, it depended again on, you know, the the issues that family was facing. I mean, I definitely felt um, the affluent children, um, you know, in some ways they had, you know, so much opportunity. Uh, their parents had sufficient resources. They went to very good um, public schools or private schools. But the academic pressure that they were under was really intense. Um, and so while they didn't have sort of you know, economic difficulties that they were dealing with, uh, you know, several of them talked about how either they had been depressed or their friends were depressed. Um, there were intense conversations in families when, you know, if a child decided they didn't want to take one advanced placement class um, and maybe instead take another, and, you know, this had to be uh, vetted through private college counselors. It was just everything was like a really, really big deal. Um, and I also felt like upper class parents didn't have much faith in their children. It was, it's sort of an interesting thing, but even when their children were doing very well, even when they were getting straight A's, it was like there was always something wrong with the child or something was a little bit off track. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of faith among the parents that the kids would eventually figure it out. And it just felt like it was very fragile. Um, and I think that was really about getting children into college and that the stakes were so high, or at least the parents felt that the stakes were so high to get them into the right schools and the right social networks. Um, Kids in, in other families in different social classes were dealing with more, um, you know, economic stress, um, you know, parents getting divorced, um, not enough food sometimes, um, trying to figure out how to stretch the dollar. So in, in many cases, they became adultified, uh, having to think about those kinds of issues. Um, and upper class children were adultified in a different way. It was sort of like the whole rest of your life and the success and whether or not you're going to have it um, started early. So it, it was, um, you know, I don't know that any children had it particularly easy, but I, I do think that middle class and working class parents expressed more what I would just call faith in their children. I believe that, you know, if their kids were doing well, that they likely would continue to do well. And just that, that added layer of anxiety that I saw percolating all the time in the upper income families just, just wasn't there as much. Mm hmm so what were the, some of the most surprising findings of your research? Well, we talked about one already, which was how worried the upper class families were. That took me like a year and a half to make sense of. But um, there were so many different things. Uh, one of them was about how gender um, interacts with these issues. And so, as I mentioned at the top, you know, the father's 
we're largely in charge of the financial aspects of a family security project. And um, I profile Paul Ma in the book who you know, told me that he had created this Excel spreadsheet that went from like, you know, 10 years before I interviewed him to like 40 years in the future or 50 years in the future. And he'd mapped out all his financial obligations and everything. And what was so interesting in talking to him and then his wife, Brooke, is that they're both highly educated, you know, had um, graduate degrees and, Yet they had this very traditional gender division of labor in the sense that Brooke had sort of cut back at work and then wasn't working um, and was primarily focused on the children. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of conflict in the relationship because even though it was a very traditional division of labor in many ways, um, there was a sense that they were each doing a lot. Um, whereas families in the middle class and working class um, the women were kind of doing everything. They were, they, I refer to them in the book as the designated warriors. So first of all, there was more financial issues to worry about uh, because they didn't have as much, as many resources and because they were kind of up against some like, you know, layoffs and other things that just happened um, with greater frequency. But when the family was dealing with, with insecure times, it was the women in these families who were in charge of dealing with it. The women were also in charge of um, any issues that came up with the kids, whether it was school related or, you know, social issues or anything else. Um, and they were very, very stressed out. And I would say many, many times unhappy group who just were the, the, the division of worry with their, um, with their husbands was very uneven and they, they were shouldering most of it. So it's kind of an interesting, um, thing to think about, especially when the upper class families, like those women and that group who were college educated, had graduate degrees as well. They probably were in some ways you would think about it most, most very well positioned, I guess, to kind of work and have careers and all of that. And, um, Many of them really uh, had scaled back at various points um, to focus on, on the kids, which is part of that security project. And that, that wasn't an option for women in the middle class or working class. Um, so that anyway, it led to the uneven division of burden within these middle class and working class families led to a lot of like emotional issues, a lot of conflict at home. And, um, you know, the, those also were interviews that I came out and I just felt like there's a lot of there's a lot of stress here and a lot of sadness. Yeah, that was something that I actually found most interesting was the gender division of not just labor of managing the household, but of the worry and the stress, because it seemed, as you said, that it disproportionately fell on the mothers across the board. It did. And it was sort of what I call in the book, it's, you know, the, it's the insecurity shift mm -hmm. as families are kind of more likely to experience, uh, you know, a layoff or an uninsured medical emergency, um, you know, an increase in, in rent, all of these things. There is a, it's a distinctive type of work and it, it's like the second shift, but it's, it's again, the insecurity shift and it's worrying about, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul and, and running the numbers and, you know, how are we going to come up with the money for that school field trip or how are we going to come up with the money to, to do soccer this year or, or whatever it is, or to pay the electricity bill like that, that kind of work. I actually think within sociology that there's much more to be understood about that. And, and part of it, it's hard, it's hard to study because it's almost, it's hard to see because it's inside people's heads. Um, but I do think there are gendered and class dimensions to it that we haven't really even, um, even begun to, to fully unpack. I mean, I think about Paul Ma and his Excel model, you know, a spreadsheet. 
Um, and then other other mothers who were, you know, doing something very different because they had more limited resources. But it's the same kind of thing. It's a it's a worry about money, um, and and a figuring it, it all out. So um, I think there's a lot to be explored there. Yes, I agree. And actually, some of my work that is going to look at women's economic decision making and mm. household management and managing of the home, and that it's really more than just cooking, cleaning, and watching children that there's so much it, into it's it. much more and it's more than just I think even the concept that we have don't do it don't do the whole thing justice no. because I, I point out in in the book and um about you know it's paying the bills is more than just writing a check or more than doing bill pay right you've got to like figure it all out in the first place um, and so I think there's just a lot, there's a lot more to discover about how people think about this and, and the, the toll that it takes. So I write about worry work in, in the book, and I feel like that's a whole layer of, um, of, of household work that, I mean, you could broadly put it in the category of household work, but um, I'm, I'm glad you're focusing on it because we need to understand it in, in a lot more depth. I think so too. And so that kind of moves me to my last big question of what's next for you research-wise? Are you working on something similar, follow-up, something totally new? Yeah, I'm working. Uh, I just started a, a recent project with some colleagues at Stanford, um, Tomas Menes and Crystal Redekop, about um, – we're starting with people who are living in their RVs in Silicon Valley as a result of just the exorbitant uh, costs and, and, and rents and in housing. Um, we, we have a housing crisis here. Um, and more and more people are starting to live in their RVs. And uh, so we're starting with um, that group of people and figuring out um, you know, how, how do people come to live in their RVs? It's, you know, there's of course some people who are, it's more of a lifestyle choice and other people it's, it's sort of the, the option that they, the only option they have to turn to. Um, and uh, so we've just started that project and beginning to understand what it's like to um, live in sort of insecure housing or non-traditional housing and, and particularly the, the sort of stigma that people experience um, doing that or, or maybe not. So for some people who have higher status in other areas of their lives, whether they work in technology, you know, you hear about the engineers who live in their RVs or, or whatever, um, you know, that some people have less stigma because their identity is tied to other high status um, categories. And, and some people have a lot less of those, those kinds of categories to pull from. So it's, um, we're just at the beginning stages. And I, I think it's part though of a larger um, issue with housing in the Bay Area that, Again, what I, I like to do in, in my work is talk about how these issues don't just impact one group of people. Um, there's the, there's kind of a toll on everybody, um, even those who are better off. And while it may be less pressing, it's still it's still a toll. And there's there's costs for all of us to live in societies that are characterized by such high levels of inequality and, and insecurity. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, we're about out of time. So thank you so much for interviewing with us. And once thank again, uh, Marianne Cooper, author of Cut Adrift, Families in Insecure Times. And thank you for listening to Office Hours. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Marianne Cooper speaking about her book, Cut Adrift, Families in Insecure Times. 
The episode was hosted by Sarah Catherine Billups, edited by me, Matt Gunther, and produced through the Society pages at the University of Minnesota. If you'd like to learn more about what sociologists know about contemporary families and their relationship with changing economic structures, you'll find plenty of great writing on that and other social science on our website, thesocietypages.org.